Welcome to Ring of Fire Radio. I'm Sam Cedar. On today's show, Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports podcast will join us to discuss the role of athletes in society and why white Americans were polarized over the kneeling of Colin Kaepernick. Heather Digby Parton will once again help us get through the news of the week. And we will re-air our interview with progressive Andrew Romanoff, who is primarying against John Hickenlooper for Senate in Colorado on June 30th. If you're listening to the free podcast right now, do us a favor, support the show. You can help us out by becoming a member over at rofpodcast.com. For the time being, we are uh, basically providing the entire show for free because we don't want to lock anybody out during this uh, very unique and trying time of uh, coronavirus and and perhaps what we're going through with the economy. So head over to rofpodcast.com. Sign up if you're not feeling any uh, financial pinch and support this program. Here to break down this week's news, Heather Digby-Parton from Hullabaloo. So, Heather, um, interesting week in the news. I, I feel like we say that every week on some level, and, 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 and many times it, it is. Uh, but a lot of disparate things going on. In, um, uh, we have, across the country, there have been city, I don't want to exaggerate, but there have been cities. We still have ongoing protests. Uh, we still have, you know, Almost a daily uh, example of the police um, either being uh, incredibly violent at a protest or continuing to uh, shoot unarmed black men or uh, shoot. Um, you know, we have a, a case in Georgia this week where they um, essentially uh, harassed a guy for about 45 minutes who was sleeping in his car. They suspected of having uh, of being drunk, but of course he was sleeping in his car. He wasn't driving, uh, and that led to him being shot. Um, we have uh, the the varied attempts of of police reform that we're seeing around the country. Different uh, Albuquerque, not necessarily cutting uh, their police department, but building sort of an apparatus that would presumably take over a significant portion of their responsibilities. Uh, Philadelphia cutting uh, their their police budget. There's uh, talk in New York of perhaps cutting a police budget uh, to a billion dollars. We haven't quite seen that yet. Um Donald Trump put on a little bit of a cosplay uh, this week, talking about how it's time to get rid of the chokehold, except for when uh, the police feel like they need it. And, um, uh, you know, trying to act like a, a human being, in part because I think he realizes he's in big trouble with uh, black voters. He was never going to get a lot of black voters, but he didn't need much to uh, significantly improve his performance and perhaps you know, from an electoral college standpoint, uh, help him. They got some big pushback by scheduling a rally. And there's two aspects of this. One is that they're doing it in a closed uh, um, arena. 
in Oklahoma. And the other is that they scheduled it on Juneteenth in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Tulsa, of course, was the uh, the 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 location of maybe the worst race massacre in uh, single day massacre in the United States, where the Black Wall Street in Tulsa, Oklahoma, was um, essentially attacked uh, and existed, and you know, private planes dropping bombs on people. Um, and he was going to do this on Juneteenth. There was enough pushback that they switched it to Saturday. Um, give me your sense of all those disparate things that are happening just in that one sort of silo. Well, it's amazing. And, you know, I mean, the, the Juneteenth thing is unbelievable. I, it, and, of course, we saw Trump gave a bunch of interviews this past week. And in one of them, I think it may have been the Wall Street Journal, but I can't be absolutely sure. He talked to a bunch of people. But one of the things he said was that he did, you know, the uh, the black community a big favor because he made he told everybody about Juneteenth because nobody knew about it before and before he did that. So and, and he said that that he pulled everybody in the White House, presumably all the white people, and they hadn't heard of it. So, you know, he really did them a big favor with that whole thing because now everybody knows what Juneteenth is, which, of course, is just – it's so ignorant. I, I, you know, it's right up there with the Frederick Douglass thing, you know, where he said, that, you know, Frederick Douglass is doing some great work these days, and it's good to see him being acknowledged or whatever it was. I mean, right. he's so ignorant, and particularly about this kind of stuff. He's ignorant about everything, but particularly about anything to do with – with the African-American history or any kind of American history and, and, and on these sort of, you know, very, very delicate and difficult, um, you know, and, and, and challenging kinds of, uh, you know, racial and cultural um you know, subjects, issues. He's just, he's completely the wrong person. And, and so, of course, you know, you have to go back and look at Trump when it comes to the police reform thing, because I think that that's, it's very interesting to me. I mean, we know that he can't learn anything. I mean, he just isn't capable of learning from his own mistakes or from a book or anything else. And one of the things that, that really struck me this week, and I wrote a piece about it for Salon, was the fact that, you know, it was almost exactly three years ago that we had the, the incident in Charlottesville. Um, and, I mean, we all know what Trump did and what, what he basically did. He didn't take it seriously at all. At the time, we weren't quite sure how he was going to react to this stuff. It was still early enough. It was in his first year. And we didn't know whether or not he might listen to somebody or maybe someone would tell him something about how to act in these situations. Um, and he waited for 48 hours before he said anything. This was after the the, the demonstration uh, that night, you know, where they had the guys marching with the tiki torches, you know, saying Jews will not replace us, and defending the con- Confederate um, statues. And then the next day, of course, where the big street protests and the killing of Heather Heyer, the, uh, the protester, the anti-racist protester. In any case, he took 48 hours to respond to that. And then he came out and he gave a really perfunctory, weird speech. He was there to do some – he was at Bedminster at his golf club in New Jersey. And he gave this weird speech where he said – you know, he talked about the veterans and he did this and that. And then he said something. He said, you know, well, this is wrong – People should, little children should be able to go out and go play in the streets and be with their parents and have a good time. That was his, that was his, his statement. Um, And he said something about how, you know, there are people, there are good people on both sides. 
Well, th- that did not go over well. That was the first speech. He came out the, uh, the next day in response to all the criticism, and he actually gave a good speech. I don't think people remember this. It was actually good. Obviously, it was teleprompter written by somebody else, and he said racism will not be tolerated, and we have to work together and bring the country together and blah, blah, blah. And I thought, uh, you know, when I went back, and obviously when I was writing this piece, I went back and reviewed all this, and I'm looking at it going, wow, there was a moment there where Trump listened to somebody and actually could have been that president. But because of his earlier speech, when he was quizzed about it a couple of days after that at a press conference, he lost it, went back to being, you know, he became himself again. The real Trump asserted itself. And that's when he said, you know, there were very fine people on both sides, which is now an infinite, infamous comment that will dog him to the end of his days. You know, it's one of those things that he will be remembered for having said it. So, you know, clearly he has learned nothing. And I was reminded of the fact as he was standing up there holding a press conference now after another several days of, of him, you know, being completely off base and tenured about the moment in the in the wake of the George Floyd murder. And, you know, he ostensibly was going to introduce an executive order that was going to deal with, you know, the policing, you know, racist policing and violent policing. And, of course, it was very thin gruel. I mean, you know, it wasn't. You know, it was something, but it was it was nothing. And what was most, um, uh, you know, obvious to me about it was that he was standing there with, surrounded by police officers who were invited to the Rose Garden, and he goes into this big long spiel about, you know, he says a few good words about how you know we need to do these reforms, and then went on and on and on about law and order and the police were the greatest people in the world and the only ones who were guilty of anything was this tiny and he says and I use the word tiny. I don't know why, this tiny percent that maybe do some things wrong, and then he stood there, and he and he sat down, and he signed the thing, surrounded by police, and they all smiled and grinned, and the whole thing was so off-key to me. I, I was watching this just going, this man can never learn anything, and again, it reminds you of an earlier situation where he, back in 1989 in New York City, in the, in the, during the Central Park Five um, situation where he took out that full-page ad, and the title of it was Bring Back the Death Penalty, Bring Back Our Police, and that is who he is. And, uh, you know, the idea that somehow that this president in this moment, it just literally could not be worse. You know, I mean, from the gassing of the protesters to calling people in, you know, calling for the active duty military to take to the streets, you know, this whole this whole painful, painful episode on so many levels that I think, you know, the entire country has had its consciousness raised, or at least, you know, a, a large majority of it has, and is starting to recognize, you know, this sort of gun, having this gut-wrenching confrontation with our racist culture and policing and the, the absolute need to take finally take a hard look. I mean, I have no guarantee that that's actually going to happen, but we are in a moment where I think we're closer than we've been in any time I can remember of actually doing something about it. And here we right. have this president just basically representing this weird antediluvian uh, attitude of, you know, the law and order and we've got to, you know, protect our police and whatever. And it was just, it was so jarring. Just proving once again that, you know, he is the <laughs> worst person uh, to be leading the country at a moment like this. And, you know, it was it was 
you know, it would be depressing if it weren't so dangerous, you know. Instead, it right. makes you angry, or makes me right. angry anyway. Right. We, it's almost you can't afford to feel sad about it because uh, it, you sort of you you get a man the uh, ramparts as it were. Exactly. Uh, and, um, and you know, and and we're also seeing things like in in Atlanta where uh, the police are, you know, right. we're starting to to see these sort of um, the police attempt uh, essentially trying to leverage their their uh, you know the protection of people in the city uh, to you know uh, I guess. Uh, prevent any type of genuine reform. And so I really do think we are at a, and we talked about this uh, quite a bit, I think last week, it just, you know, we're at a, a tipping point. I don't know that that means necessarily we're going to get a big change right now, but I do think at least attitudes have changed enough that, and, and it, it is, it's hard to, to know how much these attitudes I'm talking about white people, uh, really, I mean, because I think there's nothing that I think black people. I don't think that the, the it, it, to the extent that you know polling has changed on this. It's not black people. Uh, black people have been fully aware of what what you know right. <laughs> uh, of these issues for uh, a long time. Um, I, but I think that there's you know just a greater awareness, or presumably caring, uh, by white people, not all white people. <laughs> Uh, but but the numbers have shifted a little bit and I, I it, it will be interesting to see um, how uh, how how durable these attitudes are if Donald Trump is not associate is not a part of the equation. And and I think that also goes for things like immigration, frankly, and, and a lot of other things. I mean, there's been a lot of research that shows between. Obama and Trump issues have become a lot of political issues have become uh, racialized in in many respects. Um, And, uh, you know, for the right under Obama and for the left under Trump. And so uh, one wonders and one hopes certainly that these attitudes will uh, continue in this trajectory regardless of, of Trump being a foil or not. And I suspect it will. And, and that, uh, that brings up uh, immigration. Um, yep. We had two big rulings so far. We've got, I think, about five other cases coming in the next, I don't know, week or so um, that have yet to be resolved at the Supreme Court that are pretty important ones. Trump's finances, um, uh, the constitutionality of the Consumer Financial Protection Bureau. Um, there's there's a couple others. Uh, faithless electors. There's a big abortion case coming. Uh, out, there's actually. a big abortion case with a trap law in Louisiana. Um, there's, uh, I believe, one other that uh, escapes me at the moment. But um, this week we've had two cases that were resolved, and they were both, frankly, I mean. They were a little bit shocking. Next week, we're going to be talking to uh, to get a, a Supreme Court wrap up. Uh, but we should cover you know, we should talk about these uh, earlier in the week. We had a six three decision on the on Title seven of the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which was a question of discrimination in the context of employer to employee relationship. And the court found that the 
prohibition about firing someone and job discrimination because of their sex meant that you could also not discriminate against someone for being gay or transgender. And the argument, at least as presented by Neil Gorsuch, uh, was a so-called textualist one. I happen to think this is a bunk uh, legal theory, but it worked out well this time, was that essentially boils down to this, is that if you would not fire a woman for dating a man, then you cannot fire a man for dating a man. And or you could present it if you would not fire a man for dating a woman, you cannot fire a woman for dating a woman. If you um, if you would not fire a woman for uh, who was born as a, uh, you know, whose birth uh, record says uh, born as a female uh, and is presenting as a female, you know, uh, as working for you, you cannot fire that person if you if they are presenting as a male because it involves their sex. And and that was it. Uh, and it's it's a pretty straightforward ruling. I'm not sure I necessarily subscribe to the reasoning, uh, but uh, fine. It worked out well. I think there's a lot of reason to be concerned about such textualism being established, but it it's there but with Gorsuch. It's going to be there. Uh, and then later in the week, five to four decision, the Trump administration has not basically is not competently sunk DACA. And so therefore they can't. I mean, that that is what it really amounts to. And right. so but nevertheless, that's going to make regardless of the um, the legal reasoning. We're talking about millions of people who were unprotected in the workplace because they were gay or transgender are now finally going to be able to. um not suffer discrimination, or at the very least, will have a uh, a mechanism in which to to uh, to fight against that discrimination. We over maybe about half the states did not have any type of statutes protecting people in that way, and there's going to be a lot of ancillary uh, fallout from this. Title Eight in housing. There's a, there's a, even in the in, in Alito's dissent, he said there was about a hundred statutes that also. Um, uh, reference no discrimination best based on sex. And mm-hmm. presumably those protections are going to be afforded to uh, LGBTQ folks, which is fantastic and has like a material impact on millions of people's daily lives. Same with the DACA ruling. Um, uh, close to a million, I think we're talking about maybe uh, hundreds of thousands of people and and million if you talk about their families and their friends and you know they finally can breathe easy um at least for the time being uh you know i mean knock on wood donald trump won't have a second term and another bite at this apple but um that they're safe and secure and so you know um i i think we've got a lot of problematic decisions coming down the pike with these this conservative court but for the moment, anyways, and it could change in just like in a day or two, um, some pretty good outcomes. Well, look, I mean, my feeling is this. Look, this is a conservative majority on this court, and I don't have very high expectations for anything. But if they come up with rulings 
that, you know, based on whatever, whether it's because Donald Trump's people are substandard D-list, you know, terrible lawyers who don't know how to do a, you know, don't know how to discriminate properly, or, you know, it's just, you know, this kind of a an affirmation of a weird conservative style of jurisprudence that they're trying to promote. Whatever the court's reasonings are there, uh, if it's exactly as you, if it, the end result at this moment is that millions of people, their lives are materially improved or they can breathe easier for a little bit or that actual human beings have a po- are positively affected by this, um, you know, I, I'm, I'm surprised and I'm happy because what that says to me is that, you know, even, you know, I don't, again, I will not have high expectations. I'm thoroughly expecting this conservative majority to hand down some rulings that are going to be awful. I don't, I honestly, I can't imagine that that's not going to happen in ways that will have the opposite effect on actual human beings' lives. Right. Um, you know, we're dealing with a very, very, and this is going to be with us for quite some time to come. I'm sad to say. Um, so, but, you know, I'll take it. I'll take it. And, and I will also, you know, I have to assume this is, you know, we're going into this election and it's one of the things, you know, everybody's saying, uh, you know, this week as, as those rulings came down, well, you know, it's handing Trump something. He can get his flock together or his, his cult together and, you know, use the demagogue the hell out of these issues and get them out to vote. And, you know, frankly, I think putting any, anything that puts a barrier between Donald Trump and the Supreme Court is probably a good thing. I, I you know, that it's fine. I, I think his people are going to come out to vote anyway. But these fissures on the conservative side, these things where, you know, you're these a lot of, of you know, Republicans who are sticking with Trump because out of just some tribal loyalty, and there are plenty of them. There, you know, there's 40 percent plus in this, uh, you know, voters who are still, you know, with Donald Trump. Um, this is the kind of thing where it it matters, where you know you can sort of see you know some divisions being sown there, which is which is good. The the entire conservative movement is is you know in crisis as well. It should be. It's not just Trump. It's their whole their entire you know philosophy is being questioned now. And this is the kind of thing that can do that, you know, where you start to you have people, not just never Trumpers, people who don't like his tweets or whatever. I'm talking about people looking at the very, you know, the entire program and and questioning it. And you do see that a little bit. I mean, it's important that these people be be weakened and be questioning themselves. So this is the kind of thing where you see a division, even if it's just on some kind of, you know, uh, utilitarian sort of sort of basis. I, I think it's valuable, and, and I'm happy to see it because, you know, Roberts, people are going to be asking forever, you know, what does John Roberts really want? What's he after? Is it court legitimacy? Is he just throwing out some, you know, some lifelines in case Joe Biden wins and, you know, so he won't do something destructive to the court or whatever. I don't even know. I've read a bunch of things about what's motivating John Roberts. But the truth is, is that, is that, you know, whatever it is that they're doing, if they do things like this, even on these sort of instrumental grounds, um, it, 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 you know, it gives some sort of, 
of lifeline to anyone who thinks that the, that the actual rule of law or the, the way things are supposed to work, even if it works in favor of conservatives, that somehow or another that those those kinds of, of institutional sort of you know ways of, of governance are still potentially in effect. Uh, you know, I don't know, but I, I was pleased to at least see that much. I don't have very, you know, I don't have very many high hopes, but at least some DACA kids and, um, right. you know, some LGBTQ people are, are you know, get, know that they aren't, that Jerry Falwell Jr. isn't running everything and that, you know, Donald Trump and, uh, and V-Dare isn't ruin, running everything on immigration, that maybe there's some hope, that there are some conservatives out there who might still, you know, believe in some vestige of humanity. Yeah, maybe. I mean, I, I, I you know, I keep thinking that we are probably, I don't know, a day or two away from the 200th uh, federal judge that uh, Mitch McConnell will have oh, yeah. ran through the oh, Senate. Yeah. And so oh, yeah. um, I, I think there's also probably going to be a feeling of like, well, you know, we throw we, we, we lose a couple of small fish because we're about to, uh, you know, have the big haul over the next yep. 20 or 30 years. I mean, that's basically what we're talking about. We have two. All we're going to get is small federal. fish for some yep. time to come, I'm afraid. There's no yep. big fish for, for the good guys. Mitch McConnell, the Grim Reaper, has done his job, and, you know, it's not going to be pretty. I, I don't even want to think about what's going to happen in, in the courts over the next 20 years. It's, just, it's awful. I will also say Chuck Schumer is, as uh, I think, um, uh, helped him quite a bit, uh, frankly. Um, and you know, uh, I, I have not been impressed by Chuck Schumer's. There, I, I don't think he has any real interest in 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 blocking uh, what uh, what what McConnell has done. I mean, I think that's pretty apparent. Um, like he, you, there there could have been ways of gumming up things, but uh, Chuck Schumer was was always afraid of a fight, and you know, so much so that the guys out there. You know, recruiting, you know, one of the side stories we, we interviewed uh, um, Charles Booker in, in Kentucky, an amazing candidate uh, mm -hmm. running uh, in a primary to uh, take on Mitch McConnell. Now, look, the chances of a Democrat beating Mitch McConnell were always pretty slim. Any Democrat, <laughs> any Democrat, any Democrat. I don't care who it is. Um, but for whatever reason. Chuck Schumer was insistent on on Amy McGrath and um, pouring tens of millions of dollars into this primary campaign. And it's uh, there is, you know, and, and we're seeing this, too, with, you know, and I don't mean to pivot, but, we, you know, we've talked about the SCOTUS and we're talking about the courts and uh it just occurs to me because, you know, uh, on uh, on Tuesday, we have elections in, in New York as well. When you look at what they're doing, you know, whether you like the the effort exerted to have Amy Grath beat uh, Charles Booker in the primary when there's very little chance of beating uh, Mitch McConnell. And, and if you look at the polls, <clears throat> it's hard to know which polls to um, to take seriously. But the, the polling shows that Booker probably does a little bit better than McGrath. Certainly has far better favorable ratings. I mean, significantly, like high double digit, better ratings, favorable ratings. But nevertheless, there's a lot of money to burn uh, in this year on a primary that you're not even picking the best candidate. You're trying to pick a candidate who is going to be to the right of you if you're Chuck Schumer. 
Now we can have a debate as to you know who's got a better shot in Kentucky, right or left. I, I don't know, uh, frankly, and I and there's certainly no there's certainly no data points to suggest that it's necessarily Amy McGrath. I mean, the polling shows otherwise. Um, but if you look at that, and then you also look at what's happening in New York with Elliot Engel, we yep. also interviewed uh, Jamal Bowman and. Um, and also Adnan uh, Girgagas, uh, who um, I think it's Girgagas, who who was was another uh, progressive running in that race. He dropped out to support Bowman because Bowman had sort of managed to coalesce all the support. And you have Warren Sanders, AOC, progressive supporting uh, Bowman, and you have Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi, Hillary Clinton. Supporting Angle, who, just to remind everybody, voted against the signature issue of Barack Obama's foreign policy. And it's like Chuck Schumer was not keyed up for this race. It's not like he got in this race, you know, six to eight months ago. He just put out an endorsement three days ago. And it really does feel like there is a that there are alarm bells going off amongst some Democrats because they they are afraid not even of having progressive members of their caucus, although I'm, I'm sure they're afraid of that as well. They're afraid of even like progressive members winning a primary and, you know, like in Kentucky. And well, well, there just seems to be like a real intense um pushback on progressives winning where ostensibly right we're told nancy pelosi chuck schumer they're ostensibly progressives it's a little bit strange well i mean it's it's interesting but you know the two situations i mean i the the one with angle in in new york doesn't surprise me at all because you know look we know what happened with Joe Crowley, right? I mean, AOC, uh, you know, that was a shocking sort of upset, and now they're looking at, oh, my God, you know, in a lot, in a lot of blue, you know, big blue districts, you know, that is a real, that is a real threat. And, you know, that you're going to have more progressives come along. There are more, you know, it, that is the place where you're going to find the progressives, right? right? Of That's course. a very logical place to do a primary from the left. And, and Crowley scared the hell out of them. Now they're seeing that Engel is under pressure, and that doesn't surprise me. What the, the Kentucky situation, though, it's, it's completely absurd. Number one, Schumer should not be playing in in a primary in Kentucky. I don't think he even knows what the hell he's talking about there. Maybe he thought he was, you know, giving McConnell a scare. Or, you know, remember back in the old days, it wasn't that long ago, where the leadership would never challenge each other. You right. know, they would never back any kind of a challenge in their own district. I mean, that was as recent, I think, as like Tom Daschle, which was in the early 2000s when they when the Republicans went after him and broke that norm. Well, you know, maybe Chuck Schumer thought he was being cute or funny or whatever, but it's ridiculous because what what Schumer should be doing is letting a primary play out with the strongest candidate among Democrats, right? I mean, if they were to win, if for some reason 
it's one of those waves, right? And and maybe McConnell find you know in some miracle he actually is in trouble. You'd want the strongest Democratic candidate there because you want to get excitement and get people coming out to vote. Why would you pick one that does not do that among the Democrats in your own in in their own in their own state? I mean, it makes no sense. If it's a wave, it's a wave. Get a blue person in there. Get somebody who gets the base excited. Don't do something where you're trying to, you know, go, go, you know, to both ends against the middle. It makes no sense. I don't, you know, so basically I think Schumer spent all that money just to rattle, thinking he was rattling Mitch's cage. And I don't think Mitch's cage is rattled at all by Amy McGrath. He's not fair to her. But even if you, even if you give Schumer that benefit of the doubt that like he was doing it for this, he's, that's a dumb way to rattle the cage. Like, why wouldn't you go with with uh, um, uh, Booker in that instance? Like, what? How much cage rattling is it to uh, to run this centrist uh, Democrat who is like you know bragging about a relationship with Trump? Like, no, you want to rattle um, Mitch McConnell's cage. You want to nationalize this race. You have him run against a progressive uh, black candidate. I mean, exactly. I mean, like, like. Does Chuck Schumer not understand the fault lines that have come across here in this uh, in this era? No. Like how much how much you know more obvious could it be? And this guy's just bad at politics. And and my well, understanding yeah. is he's also just like he just he, he, in the Senate the guy just is um, constantly trying to um, placate all members. Uh, and so ends up, you know, saying a lot of things right. to a lot of different members that are not necessarily, you know, he's not terribly attached to. Let's put it that way. Uh, yeah. Uh, I mean, say what you will about Harry Reid, you know, and, and I had problems with some of his politics, too. But I think he was a much sharper, uh, you know, sharper elbowed kind of partisan player. And, you know, Schumer is just not up for the task. There must be somebody better than him. I wonder if there'll be a challenge if if the Senate does change by some miracle changes hands. Um, probably not, because usually they march around to the big victory lap. Look how great I was when it really had right. nothing to do with Schumer. And he'll, you know, so then he'll be the big hero. Um, but it would be nice if there was somebody in the Senate who could do, because I just don't, I agree with you. I, this guy is just ineffectual. He's ineffectual in every way. And if there, if the Democrats do have a majority, he's going to be sitting there looking at Mitch McConnell, who has, who proclaimed this week that he had no intention of stepping down, uh, as the Republican, the leader of the Republican caucus. Um, I, you know, the Republicans have always been very good, very effective at being in the minority in a way that Democrats just do not seem to learn. And I just, you know, I, I, I worry that a lot of what's, what's needed, there's going to be desperate, desperate need for some very rapid, smart, tough, aggressive um, legislation to start to put things back together again, much less move forward. And is he going to be able to do it? Because I right. just don't know. I mean, I worry about oh, that. Oh, I can answer that question for you. I mean, I, I you know, uh, frankly, um, you know, what we need is someone like, frankly, like an Elizabeth Warren, who is, I think, um, not necessarily, in my estimation, the best when it comes to uh, politics, uh, you know, on an outside game type of thing, and not so much, uh, you know, in terms of where, her power derives from voters. I think that she's got some big blind spots there, but I don't think that there's 
anybody in the Senate who understands how to uh, operate in terms of institutional politics like she does. Um, I mean, Chuck Schumer, I think, is just I think he's two things. I think one is he has no ideological core whatsoever. And so his agenda is just basically uh, protecting his own power base and his own ass. And I don't think he's particularly good at any anything besides that, frankly. Uh, and, it, and, it, and it comes through. But we're we're a little bit far afield. Let's talk about uh, another inept person. And we just uh, we just got a couple more minutes here. But uh, um, and that is uh, Donald Trump. Uh, John Bolton came out. Uh, his book uh, leaked. Uh, I think they wanted to get it out the door because the White House, uh, the Department of Justice was suing him. Um, look, you and I have talked about this in the past. John Bolton is a garbage person. He's a he's a garbage um, he, of the low. he was uh, so bad that he could not get confirmed to a position at the U.N. in front of a Republican Senate back in 2000, uh, maybe it was four or five. Yeah. And uh, George Bush had to appoint him as a recess appointment. This, that's how that's how uh, sort of. How he has been, you know, how far outside the mainstream he was and how far he's been brought in to the mainstream. And uh, I think people, you know, just sort of largely forgot that. But he's he's a he's a uh, an odd guy, a I think, a in, in some respects, a troubled guy and, you know, uh, was much more suited, in my estimation, as a Fox News contributor. Mm-hmm. Um, and, uh, you know classic case of no honor amongst thieves and uh i guess you know it's nice to have a little bit more detail and to have a lot of things confirmed about donald trump but there's nothing in there that we didn't know and all he is is uh john bolton's out there you know sort of like really um showing the 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 heart of the republican party which is um me above all else screw the country i've got some i can monetize this and i'm going to (laughs) Right. I mean, that's like almost the ideology. Uh, what's in my own self-interest is best for society. And uh, <laughs> right. I mean, it's the pursuit of my, uh, you know, yeah. each individual pursuing their Trump own self-interest. Yeah. That's what he did. And uh, so I would recommend to people, obviously, don't buy the book, um, right. you know, uh, read, read the highlights. And that's all you need. Uh, yeah. Or uh, wait till it come out on one of those, you know, sort of uh, condensed uh, things. So you can just read it uh, as a condensed thing. <laughs> right, exactly. Um, but exactly. Donald Trump, I mean, who knows how it's going to impact him? There's also another book coming out from his niece that I'm more interested in reading, frankly, because, um, you know, uh, she's not in any way enabling this guy. Um, but and it's stuff th- we haven't heard before. I'm I'm curious about that too. Yeah, it's a totally different the, sort of like needs, uh, yeah. realm. But mm-hmm. uh, so let's just talk about Donald Trump in terms of this campaign. Uh, his polling is at maybe one of his lowest ebbs, uh, certainly against Joe Biden. But even in terms of like um, job approval numbers, he is heading to Tulsa uh, this weekend, much to the sort of like quiet angst of the uh, Tulsa mayor and all the uh, medical people there. They're going to be indoors. I, I, I have a, a pool on my show. I've, I've taken uh, 10% will be the number of people wearing masks. 
And, you know, it's unclear to me whether I can count the reporters in that because um, and who knows? Maybe they'll have a spike. Maybe they won't um, of coronavirus. Uh, But Donald Trump is sort of desperately trying to bail water. They're finding that Joe Biden is not as um, hated as Hillary Clinton was. Um, I imagine that is, you know, I don't know how it breaks down, but it's a combination of misogyny and also just sort of extended uh, uh, hatred of of Hillary Clinton over multiple years and people having a cottage industry. I think there's misogyny and I think there's also her last name, frankly, because uh, there was a lot of leftover animosity towards uh, Bill Clinton. Um, and so uh, Trump seems to be panicking a little bit. And the question is, when you have nine, six or six states, nine to six states, I think, in the country now have had multiple record days of infections. Arizona's very close to busting through their ICU um, capacity. Um, well, I mean, can we even measure anything in terms of this political race? Because who knows what's going to happen three weeks from now? I just, you know, to me, this looks like a death cult. Uh, The idea that Trump is insisting that his people come into an indoor environment and his his followers, they're not the young protesters that were out in the outdoors in the streets the other days. These are older people, many of whom I am sure have all these what they call comorbidities, you know, that make it more likely that they're going to get very sick if they get the disease. And he is telling them not to wear masks. He's he, in fact, I think he said this week that in one of those interviews we'd mentioned earlier that that the wearing of masks, people are wearing masks because they don't like Donald Trump. That's what they're that's what he was saying. He says that the pandemic is dying out, that it's fading away, that it's not really happening. In other words, you can believe me or you can believe your lying eyes. And so he all of those people are going to show up and they're going to go in there. And I have no doubt that there is going to that it's a super spreader, what they call a super spreader event. We may not know for, you know, another month or more as to how far this thing spread. And by that time, he will have had a whole bunch more of these things. And, you know, I I mean, I sort of quipped in a rather dark way the other day, you know, maybe they should just hand out Kool-Aid at the door because, you know, the the Jim Jones-style Kool-Aid, because... This to die of COVID is a horrible way to die, and and the idea that he's doing this to his own people is just one of the most stunning things about and in a very very stunning administration and presidency. I just can't believe he would do this, and and it's all so that he can prove that he didn't mess up in the beginning and this, you know, that he's beaten the virus and that it's no big deal and to get that stock market up and to get the economy back and and all of these things. And, of course, all of that is is completely contingent upon the, the, the virus being contained to a degree that people believe they can go out and do things. I mean, apparently he thinks that his own voters are the only people he needs to uh, get the economy going again. The whole thing is absolutely astonishing to me. I, I can't – this is one of those things where I think people will look back on this and just think it was one of the most demented decisions he made, and there have been a lot of them. But this one really takes the cake. He is out, he is determined to get out there and put his and 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 uh, you know convince his voters that that this disease isn't real, 
and get them out there so that they will give it to each other. I, you know, what? <laughs> you know, what kind of a person would do that sort of? Why? What kind of a politician would do it? He's getting his own voters sick. I mean, what? Well, I mean, I, I just I can't get past it. Uh, maybe I mean, who knows? I mean, I I don't know how uh, people like that will respond. Maybe it will just be like a badge of honor. Maybe uh, they'll die for I, the cause, you know. Yeah, exactly. They, like let, like the Confederates, you know, just throw themselves into the battle. Indeed, they, they, they're willing to die for Donald Trump. Well, we will have a better sense of the implications of that um, of that rally in about uh, three weeks. So, sometime yeah. around uh, July fourth, we'll get yeah. a sense. Yeah, should be, um, should be quite a celebration. Oh, yeah. uh, Heather. As always, a real pleasure. Thanks so much for your time today. I really appreciate it. My pleasure, Sam. Thanks for having me. We've seen an outpouring of activism by athletes, amongst others, since the death of George Floyd made headlines weeks ago. Here to discuss all the news involving the cross-section of sports and politics, Dave Zirin from the Edge of Sports podcast. So, Dave, in many respects, a lot of what we have seen over the past couple of weeks the some of the the greatest symbology, I guess, is a function of something that happened a couple of years ago. And, you know, obviously you've been covering this. It's is it's the the taking of the knee, which was Colin Kaepernick's response to the killing of of, of black men and women uh, by the police that in many respects ended his football career. And in some respects, it's it's all come full circle. Uh, it certainly has. And it's so interesting looking back at 2016 because it was, I believe it was August 19th, 2016, a preseason game that Colin Kaepernick was not even starting, where he made the decision just to sit during the anthem behind his teammates that were standing. And Colin Kaepernick, who's a very intelligent guy, Who's, but who's not like a big rah-rah guy, um, you know, wasn't doing it for attention, wasn't doing it to make some kind of grand statement. He was doing it because he was so disgusted, as you mentioned, by the killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling. And it was a uh, sports writer, ironic, I think this is ironic, for the NFL Network, who went up to Colin and asked him about why he was doing what he was doing, Steve Weish. And that's where Colin just went off about police brutality and about not paying tribute to a flag as long as police officers go free after killing people. And what's interesting is that, you know, that started the firestorm. And then Colin consulted with Nate Boyer, who is a former Marine and former NFL player. And it was Nate and Colin together who came up with the idea of taking a knee because, and this is one of the greatest uh, miscalculations, I think, in the history of anything is Nate thought that it would not be seen as controversial. It would be seen as respectful if Colin took the knee. And, of course, that was not the case when you're talking about the, the reactionary forces that be. Yeah, I mean, uh, that may have been a – there may have been some truth to that, I think, maybe in a different era, right, with a different president. But the, this exactly. was um, – uh, but Donald Trump saw an opening to weaponize um, uh, this, and he did. And Colin Kaepernick became this this lightning rod. And here we are now, three years later, four, nearly four years later, I guess. And, well, well, maybe we should talk about the NFL response, right? Because in many respects, 
there's almost like the NFL is trying to take a mulligan here and sort of shove some history down the, uh, you know, like, like the rabbit hole. But but give us a sense of like, you know, how the NFL responded at that time. Well, at that time, the NFL responded by affirming that they disagreed with what Colin Kaepernick was doing. They they quite uh, quite explicitly did not have his back. Uh, they were far more concerned with either upsetting Donald Trump and his Twitter finger or members of the NFL ownership fraternity actively supporting Donald Trump and therefore uh, fundamentally disagreeing with what Colin Kaepernick was doing in, in very bad faith, like actively misinterpreting what he was trying to do and the message he was trying to send. That whole reframing of the protest as being against the anthem and the flag in America and not in opposition to racial inequality and police violence. Uh, so that was their their first response to Colin Kaepernick. And the next response had much more teeth. It was simply not resigning him after the 2016 season, a season which Colin Kaepernick played really well for a terrible San Francisco 49ers team. There was just no place for him on any NFL roster. And that was the beginning of his exile, um, an exile that's produced lawsuits, an exile that's produced um, demonstrations, including one I was at in front of NFL headquarters of over a thousand people, um, and a, an exile that included hundreds, if not low thousands, of high school and college athletes who in 2017 took a knee uh, as inspired by Kaepernick, but as their own protest against police brutality uh, and racism in their hometowns. So it sparked what I would argue was a, a groundwork for so much of what we're seeing today in so many communities. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, I think because it, 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 it really, I mean, it was effective. It, I mean, it was effective. I don't know what uh, Kaepernick's, uh, you know, a specific agenda was if he sat down and had a, a notion of like 12 months out, 18 months out, 36 months out, I want this or that to happen because of this. But it certainly became a an opportunity, largely for I think for white America to educate themselves at least to some extent, right? I mean, it, it, you know, people were talking about. It. Yeah, you, you make a really good point by by uh, by focusing on white America because one of the worst media framings of Collins' protest was when people said America is polarized over this issue of taking a knee. America is polarized. But when you actually drilled down on the numbers, it was white America that was polarized right. over Colin doing this. Because overwhelming majorities of non-white Americans said, yeah, we support his protest and we support what he's trying to accomplish and what he's trying to say. And so it was an opportunity to do what was Colin's original goal, which was very simply to start a conversation. He certainly didn't expect it to, to blow up the way it did, uh, but it was just to be able to start a conversation about how to stop police officers getting away with murder. That's what it was. And he says, let's have this conversation. And it seems like now that conversation is finally happening, but it took a 50-state national uprising and, of course, several more lives, including the lives of Breonna Taylor and George Floyd and Ahmaud Arbery to make it happen. All right. I want to talk about a, 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 two more topics that I know you've written um, uh, about recently. One is, on one hand, how, broadly speaking, athletes have, and, and it sort of feels like maybe there was, 
I, I, there, you know, there was a cycle in terms of this too, with athletes sort of seeing how effective the industry was able to eject Kaepernick in many ways. And, and, and in some ways, like his protest, the, the taking of the knee died down and then it was quiet. And now it's almost as if like there has been a, a rebound effect, forgive the pun with, with, with athletes, both black and white reasserting themselves. And, you know, we're not talking over a long period of time and maybe they were always being assertive, but more consciously, more deliberately asserting themselves politically. Oh, no doubt about that. And if we're talking strictly about taking a knee, um, so many NFL players have already pledged that they're going to do just that, including uh, leading white players like like J.J. Watt uh, and the quarterback for the Cleveland Browns, Baker Mayfield. And then that that's new and that's different. And a lot of players are saying, of course, I'm going to do it. We have a problem in this country that needs to be addressed. Heck, the entire National Basketball Association had plans to restart their season playing in, in a biodome in Orlando uh, because of the pandemic. And that could be scuttled precisely because of the argument made by Kyrie Irving, among others, that NBA players, which is, of course, an overwhelmingly majority black league, shouldn't be providing bread and circuses for the people right now, shouldn't be providing distractions that sports can often provide precisely because we're engaged in this national conversation. And this conversation should not be diverted to now people talking about uh, the NBA. I mean, it's a remarkably self-conscious approach that these athletes are taking with regards to the struggle itself in the streets. And that's the part that I also think is really fascinating is for the first time, I think, I mean, since Dr. Fair of Dr. King, uh, when people like Jackie Robinson and Bill Russell marched in the streets, you're actually seeing athletes in the streets, you know, not in this sort of rare air, you know, protected by managers and, uh, you know, and, and, uh, and gated communities, but athletes in the streets marching with the people, building demonstrations, talking about what they're going to do. LeBron James talking about voting rights immediately after seeing the long lines in Georgia I mean, this is athletes in full flex mode right now, showing what they can accomplish. And that's a big deal because in the, in the urban uprisings in the late 1960s, it wasn't uncommon for athletes to be sent out to, to quell uh, uprisings, to calm people down, even sent out in their uniforms to do just that. Uh, this is a very different moment, and you see it by the number of athletes who have actually taken to the streets. It's one of those things where when it first happened with two or three athletes, I was like, whoa, this is amazing. But now it's, I mean, I'm losing count of the numbers who've been part of these marches. You, I mean, is it your sense that there, this is um, an awakening amongst athletes or is it there is that this has been something that they have been suppressing? Do you know what I mean? I mean, it's, uh, maybe it's a subtle difference, but I'm curious as if like there was a an ongoing feeling of, whether there is the moment compels them or whether it is that the moment is uh, they do not fear the way that they feared stuff before. Um, I think it has to be both. I mean, doesn't it? Because the uprisings have been so broad and vast and the, you know, the ideological capitulations among people like Roger Goodell, for example, the commissioner of the National Football League, have been so extreme that they're feeling their own power. So because of the power of the streets, they're feeling their own power to flex. And they were part of 
building that confidence of the power in the streets. So I, I see it all as, as very, very interconnected. Uh, because one thing is for certain is that this power has been there all along. And I think that the minders of sports uh, are, I mean, that's their great concern is really the athlete and more specifically the black athlete becoming self-aware of their own power, which we're seeing right now, like no time since the late sixties. But I think what's happening now is even wider uh, and deeper than what we saw in the late sixties. I mean, we have to see how long it lasts, but the, right. The sheer number of athletes, the sheer number of sports, the tenacity of the demands. I mean, it, it is a very powerful moment at the intersection of sports and politics. I, I wonder, too, if and, and, you know, this isn't something that's exclusive to sports. I think it's I think it's, you know, society wide. There's there's some of this that because everything else is suspended and, and it maybe it, it's an extension of that that theory that, um, you know, we shouldn't be playing basketball now because it, w- it would be a distraction. But because of the lack of distraction, because on some level, like there's no, there's no, uh, there's no option of like, of, of passivity, right? Like, you know, if the, if the season is, is ongoing and, uh, basketball players are playing and, uh, or whatever sport it is for that matter, or, you know, people are going into work every day, um, you simply need to be somewhat passive to not get involved in what is happening. Um, and you just go mm-hmm. about your business and every day you go to work or whatever it is. In the absence of that, it, it changes the dynamic. You need to be, uh, you know, uh, there is no, there is no routine for you to do. Like you're out there and everything mm-hmm. is everything that you're going to do in this, in this, at this time, when we're in the midst of, of this pandemic is, um, proactive on some level whether it's you're going to try and start playing again or whether you're going to go out onto the streets and it's really then becomes a uh, a choice that is on sort of equal footing on some level boy yeah i agree with that so much i mean the pandemic is that i think has to be central to the analysis of why we're seeing this 50 state national uprising i mean when you have mass unemployment mass frustration uh, mass anger at the state of things. And, and then I think one of the variables also was honestly seeing those small demonstrations of uh, white armed protesters at places like Michigan, the reopened protests, and seeing that get you know handled with kids' gloves by the police and praised by Donald Trump. I think that was a variable in this also. But I think for athletes, you know, th- there's a 12-month commitment to being a pro athlete that often involves having blinders on for that entire 12 months and being very singular in your focus. And to have those blinders removed, I think was also like a a very powerful, powerful variable in all of this, this idea of taking a step back, being able to look at the broader society. And then you have these tumultuous cases uh, with George Floyd and Arbery and Breonna Taylor, and this being something that created a perfect storm where athletes were saying, whoa, this is not only is this awful, but we have some influence in shaping the demonstrations and the demands that are to follow. We can do this. And then, of course, they have an incredible amen chorus in the streets that's ready to take actions. Do I, lastly, I mean, do you've written that 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 sports um, have an opportunity, professional sports, uh, I would imagine maybe college sports, too have a 
maybe a, a fairly unique opportunity to impact white popular opinion in a way that yeah other aspects of our culture don't explain that sure and but sort of the results of that first of all are right now 61 percent of the of the united states thinks that colin kaepernick was right to take a knee during the anthem and they would support athletes who do that in opposition to police brutality that's an incredible number 61 percent given how polarized it was in white america um, I mean, the basic argument is, is that um, when, like many, many white Americans have the option of opting out of caring about racism and police violence because it doesn't affect their lives, and yet when athletes do, do it, all of a sudden it's on sports radio. I mean, ESPN has basically been running the stories of athletes who've been involved in these protests 24-7, and that's a function of the pandemic, of course, right. because they don't have sports to cover. So this becomes what sports has to cover and debate and talk through, and that has the power to puncture privilege. That has the power to uh, put the issues in front of white eyes and force them to confront and take a side in what's taking place. And I'm just very um, gladdened and heartened by the fact that as people are being forced to line up and take a side right now and realizing that you can't be neutral on this particular moving train, that people are siding with the, with the forces of justice, much more so at this point anyway than the forces of reaction. Um, what do you think happens next? I mean, how uh, it, it feels like the, like the NFL is trying to sort of, like I say, you know, reposition themselves because it, it, in some ways it, it feels like the players have gotten out ahead of it that, you know, um, uh, capitulating to Donald Trump is not in the necessarily the best long-term interests of the NFL as a brand. And, and let's be honest, right? Like that's all they care about in the final analysis. I mean, mm -hmm. I'm sure they're Absolutely. sure they're, I'm sure there are individuals there who, who might be sympathetic and some who might not be, I mean, who knows, but in terms of, of their brand, it really is just a, um, it's in some ways it's a bellwether and I'm curious as to, you know, how you think they're going to be able to sort of, you know, particularly when sports come to the front again, you know, when, I don't know when that's going to be when we play, but you know, it's one thing that the, uh, the NFL is issuing a press release. It's another when we start to see how players and then the teams react to this stuff. Um, what, 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 what do you expect? Uh, great question. I mean, I think they're keeping they're exactly what you said. They're putting their fingers on the pulse of popular opinion and responding accordingly. Uh, they can read the polls as well as we can in terms of Trump's popularity, reelection prospects. But they also understand that they're a 70 percent black league and they could be in a state of full revolt um, and noncompliance uh, with what the NFL wants to do precisely because. Um, of this movement that's happening in the streets. So I don't know what the future is going to hold. I think that NFL players are not going to be in any way happy unless they see Colin Kaepernick actually rehired uh, and signed to a team. I think that would go a long way because the symbolism of that for players is so incredibly strong uh, in terms of is the NFL serious or are they full of crap? And I think the other thing is that they want to start to see uh, people in ownership positions in the NFL have something to say, because while Roger Goodell has made these statements 
you haven't seen exactly the lining up of franchise owners or executives behind him. They tend to be quite the conservative lot, and they're not saying anything. So we'll see what happens there as well. But it's very hard to predict because the situation is so volatile. I mean, in the last week, you've seen athletes at Texas say they're not going to be part of activities with boosters unless certain demands are met. Uh, I never thought I'd see that. You know, in, in Oklahoma, in Oklahoma State today, players are coming out enraged just because the coach of the team, Mike Gundy, was photographed wearing an own shirt, OAN, that, that idiotic news network that Trump mm-hmm. follows. Uh, you know, it's just because so just a random photo of there he is with an own shirt. Uh, they're, they're in full rebellion at Oklahoma State of all places, not exactly a hotbed of rebellion. So it, it's so hard to predict what's going to happen in a month, in a week, hell, tomorrow. All right, and lastly, let me ask you this. There, you know, we're we're in this sort of, I don't know, this ambiguous um very strange time within a strange time where um, we don't have a full sense of just how bad things are going to come with the pandemic. In some areas, it's things are improving slightly. In other areas, it's going the absolute wrong direction. And it's not like the virus is going anywhere. And we're also on the cusp of it feels like starting to feel the impact <clears throat> And obviously about 40 million people have felt the impact of losing their job. But there is this sort of broader sense of like, you know, we're fine. The worst of the economic stuff is over. We're we real building. Uh, I'm I'm hesitant to believe that. Um, Do you think that there is a weird sort of solidarity that is taking place that is sort of I don't know. uh, there, There is a. That because of we're hitting this point where there's a sort of like a, a greater class consciousness that's going on during this time where people are seeing the bailouts go to corporations and uh, right. you know, wealthy people are sort of like their biggest problem during this pandemic is, you know, what kind of ice cream they have stored away in their fridge. Right. Um, and that, that greater sort of like class consciousness somehow being, afforded to football players, many of whom make a tremendous amount of money or basketball players make a tremendous amount of money, but that their struggle is with ownership. And so there is a sort of like a, I don't know, some type of, uh, of, of empathy or simpatico uh, nature in terms of yeah. like fighting against, you know, I don't know, maybe it's some fractal inequality. I'm not exactly sure how to articulate it, but do you, do you follow what I'm saying? Yeah. Yes, and that, that, that's totally there. Um, Howard Bryant, in, in his book, The Heritage, um, he describes black athletes as being the most uh, prominent black employees in the United States. And I think that formulation is important because as much as we may think of athletes as superheroes or as living charmed lives, they are, at the end of the day, employees. And we understand that their time in the spotlight is very brief, and we understand that when they speak out, they actually risk that time in the spotlight. They risk everything that's been handed to them, and that gives them a certain social weight that, say, an actor doesn't have. Uh, It's like Colin Kaepernick has more weight than, say, uh, George Clooney, for example, to take a politically active actor, for example. You know, there's a sense that one... Uh, has the element of risk in speaking out, and right. one does not. One is an employee, and one 
is really not um, in the same kind of way and the same kind of social relationship. And that makes it that makes a huge difference. And I do think you're seeing and people getting it both instinctually and explicitly that the sides are lining up and the athletes in the streets are on the right side of history. Dave Zirin, always a pleasure. Thanks so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you, Sam. Dave Zirin is the nation's sports editor and author of 10 books on the politics of sports. Most recently, Jim Brown, Last Man Standing. He also hosts the nation's Edge of Sports podcast. You can find all of his work or contact him through his website, edgeofsports.com. One of the most important primaries for progressives is happening on June 30th in the state of Colorado, where progressive Andrew Romanoff squaring off against John Hickenlooper in an effort to flip a Senate seat in the November election. Let's listen to my interview with Andrew Romanoff from February of this year. So, Andrew, uh, let's let's just get to uh, the 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 nuts and bolts of it. Let's start with um, why you're running uh, uh, yours, uh, your race, obviously a primary, hopefully to uh, face uh, Cory Gardner. Yours, uh, Colorado is if if the Democrats are going to take the Senate, Colorado is going to be one of the first or it has to be one of the first seats that they take uh, in this effort. So just give us a sense of of why you're running. Uh, and then and then we'll take it from there. Well, you're right. There is no path to a Democratic majority in the Senate that doesn't run through Colorado. Corey's considered one of the, if not the most vulnerable Republicans in the Senate. And I'm running because I'm not content to stand by. Well, more people in the richest nation on the face of the earth struggle or suffer or die on account of problems we can fix. We need a senator who will treat the climate crisis like the emergency it is and end our reliance on fossil fuels. Uh, we need somebody who has battled the insurance industry, as I've done for the last four years as the president of a mental health organization, and we'll make sure we get a plan of comprehensive coverage for all Americans that doesn't depend on their job or the whims of an insurance company. We need to build an economy that works for everyone. We need to end this epidemic of gun violence, and we need to reform our broken immigration system. And on every single one of those issues, Cory Gardner is part of the problem. Okay, and so give us a sense. Now, you're, you're running in a primary, so the first order of business is going to be to get the Democratic nomination. Why you? Well, I've got the strongest record of legislative leadership in this race and was recognized as one of the most effective legislative leaders in America. I led the Democrats here in Colorado to our first majority in 30 years, our first back-to-back majorities since the 1960s. Uh, I have earned endorsements now from nearly 350 state and local officials uh, across Colorado, 10 times as many endorsements as all the other candidates combined. Uh, And frankly, I'm not the darling of Washington. I think that's an advantage. Coloradans want to know that you're willing to stand up to your own party when your conscience or your constituents demand it, uh, just like Cory Gardner promised and failed to do. And the truth is the national party isn't always right. Uh, We've seen and learned the hard way. Uh, what happens when you allow corporate cash to contaminate both political parties uh, in Washington? It's one of the reasons we haven't gotten the aggressive climate action we need. One of the reasons I'm running on a platform that includes a Green New Deal. Uh, one of the reasons I've earned the endorsement of the Sunrise Movement, among other environmental activists. I, t- I take it uh, in terms of uh, the, the the priorities of Coloradans, obviously the environment is up there. Um, uh, how does that play into uh, this primary? 
it's a real point of division uh, in this race, not just between Cory Gardner and me, but also between our former governor. Uh, John Hickenlooper, as you may know, got recruited into this race you know, by uh, Chuck Schumer and the Democratic Senatorial Campaign Committee, even though Hicks said he didn't want the job and wouldn't be good at it. Uh, I happen to believe him. Uh, and he has acquired a record that is not consistent with the kind of aggressive climate action we need. In fact, he sued communities in Colorado that tried to restrict fracking and protect their public health. He literally drank the fracking fluid. He refused to sign the no fossil fuel money pledge that I've signed. Not only opposes the Green New Deal, he describes progressive priorities like that as, and these are his words, the discredited ideas of Karl Marx and Joseph Stalin. I expected we'd have to fight Republicans like Cory Gardner. I didn't realize we'd have to fight Democrats who were parroting their talking points. I mean, I guess, you know, uh, uh, you know, obviously I'm not from Colorado. Um, the, you know, the, I guess the, the perspectives of Colorado is probably, uh, different from mine, but as a, a, a progressive and I, I look at a guy like Hickenlooper who is, like you say, the darling of, of Chuck Schumer and, and some in the wing, you know, I would say probably the more corporatist wing of the Democratic Party in some respects. I guess my concern, and I, I want to get your take on this, is that when a guy like Hickenlooper gets the backing of the infrastructure of, of the, the Democrats in the Senate, He's going to want the opportunity. He's there's going to be there's going to be gives and gets back and forth. And um, I know that there isn't sort of like a broad acceptance of a very aggressive climate change uh, program across the Democrats. Where does that come in? I mean, when they start to horse trade like that, I mean, you've been in a uh, legislature. You have an understanding of these dynamics. Where does that where, where does where does Coloradans end on that exchange? Well, Coloradans end up uh, holding the bag. There's a report out just recently that shows we have some of the worst air pollution in the country. It's in large part the product of the runaway oil and gas production and consumption that Governor Hickenlooper presided over. And you're right, this aggressive approach that we're taking to the climate emergency. And in fact, we put a very provocative ad on our website at andrewromanoff.com if you want to see the stakes. That doesn't sit well with the Schumer crowd or their corporate benefactors. You don't have to be a conspiracy theorist, right, Sam? I mean, you can follow the money and figure out pretty quickly why we haven't taken the climate action we need or made the kind of health care reforms that we need. It's in large part because the lawmakers who are supposed to be regulating those industries instead are subsidized by them. It's all pay to play, and we're paying the price. I mean, one of the things that, that you know, we saw, uh, when the Democrats took over, uh, the House was, uh, Nancy Pelosi immediately trying to shut down this notion of a Green New Deal. And if the Democrats get the Senate back, what, what's the opportunity? What, what kind, how does that change the pressure on the House to start to accept that if we have enough frankly, senators like yourself who are prioritizing something like this. Well, you hit the nail on the head there, Sam, right? It's not enough just to take a majority, although that's key uh, to hold the House, to flip the Senate, to take the White House. I would argue also to kill the filibuster, which is blocking progress on a lot of these fronts. Uh, but we got to make sure that we elect Democrats who bring the courage of our convictions to Washington. And frankly, I take a lot of inspiration from the young folks who are leading this charge. The, the, for example, the Sunrise Movement, which, as I mentioned, has endorsed my campaign, has done more to address this climate crisis than most of the 
adults were paying in Washington. I turned to one of the young people who was leading this charge and I expressed my admiration. And he turned to me and he said, well, no kidding, grandpa. I mean, he didn't actually say <laughs> grandpa. That was just the sentiment. He said, we're going to be here a lot longer than you are. And I think young people understand that. And it's one of the reasons that we need them to put pressure on the folks in Washington, because this change is not going to come from D.C. on its own. I want to start talking a little bit about uh, what's happening with, with Cory Gardner. But but you, you brought up uh, the filibuster. And um, I think there are senators who, in many respects, they try and position themselves in the middle of the Senate as a way of making them the power brokers, where they are representing their own interests for power. I mean, this has just been my observation over the years. They represent themselves and try and put themselves, um, you know, and if that means thwarting a, a Democratic majority, they will do that to be the guy that, uh, you know, controls the power. Right? There's, there's, there's several candidates for who those people are going to be in the Senate as they are now. Getting rid of the filibuster strengthens the hand, obviously, of, of the Democrats, uh, because it means that they need less of these people on board. Where do you see, like, what other, uh, reforms do you think needs to happen with the Senate? Are you worried about uh, getting rid of, uh, of the filibuster? No, and I'll tell you why. I led the House of Representatives in Colorado for four years. I was the Speaker of the House here. We don't have a filibuster in the State House or the State Senate. Uh, we take up or down votes on bills. One of the reforms to answer your question that I would support uh, would be the one that Colorado adopted years ago that says you can't allow the Speaker of the House or the Majority Leader or President of the Senate to just pocket bills that he or she doesn't like. Every bill in Colorado gets a hearing or a vote. The same should be true in the U.S. Senate. Instead of allowing Mitch McConnell to act like a tyrant, he calls himself the Grim Reaper of the Senate and takes it as a compliment. Another reform I'd support, Colorado has passed a sunshine law that says any meeting between two or more lawmakers on an issue of public policy has to be open to the public and the press. So you can't cobble together these backroom deals and the dark of night where nobody uh, is around except the, the lobbyists and the politicians who are cutting those deals in the first place. I think Colorado has a lot to teach Washington about how to make the legislative process more accountable and more transparent. So, Andrew, as um, you've mentioned, that climate change, obviously, a, um, a a huge priority for you. And obviously, the, the, the clock is ticking, uh, and, and certainly from Colorado. Uh, I mean, there really is few places in the country, I think, where we don't uh, begin to see the implications of this. But, of course, we're seeing it all around the world. Uh, you also have, as one of your priorities listed on andrewromanoff.com, is ensuring health care for all. Where are you in the, the spectrum of the, the various plans that we hear, particularly in the context of the presidential election? What, what, what plan do you support? Is there legislation that's been introduced in, um, in either body uh, that you uh, support at this point? What, what is your uh, theory of the case? Yes, I support Medicare for all, and I'll tell you what I mean and why. Uh, one, I think we ought to strengthen Medicare by adding some benefits that aren't covered now, like dental and vision and hearing and long-term care. And two, I think we ought to lower the age of Medicare eligibility to zero, which was part of the proponent's original plan. If you go back to 1965 when LBJ signed Medicare and Medicaid into law, the idea then wasn't that you would stop with seniors, giving them the security of health care that can never be taken away, although I'm glad we got there. It was instead to extend that same protection to all Americans. I support this plan in part, Sam, because of the experience I've had 
battling the insurance industry. I spent four years as the president of Mental Health Colorado, the state's leading advocate on behalf of families, frankly, like mine, who have suffered from mental illness or drug addiction or experienced suicide. And I'll, I'll tell you one quick story. I know it's easy to get lost in a conversation about the 28 million Americans who are uninsured or the 44 million who are underinsured or the half a million families who go bankrupt each year because they can't afford their medical bills. I met a dad whose son had deep depression and then experienced a bout of psychosis. He needed treatment. His dad's insurance plan was supposed to cover it. Most plans, in fact, by law, are required to provide equal coverage for mental and physical care. But when the dad submitted a claim, the insurance company said no. So the dad appealed the decision, and the company said no. This went on for months until his son killed himself at the age of 14. Three weeks later, his dad got a letter in the mail from the insurance company reversing its decision and agreeing to cover his late son's treatment. So I will just tell you, Sam, speaking not as a a candidate, but as a human being, it is really painful for me to have conversations with moms and dads who have lost their kids, not just to a disease that we can treat, but also to the indifference of an industry that bases its profits on its ability to exclude as many sick people and deny as many claims as possible. That's the business model. And it's a great model if you're an insurance company. It's a pretty lousy model for the rest of us. What's your sense of, of, of the ability, like how rapidly we could move to a system like that? Well, I think that reasonable people can differ on how quickly we can get there, uh, but we got to put the plan on the table. That's the point. It wasn't on the table, as you know, when the debate over the Affordable Care Act began 10 years right. ago. Even the public option, which was uh, advanced fairly timidly, uh, got sacrificed in those negotiations. You shouldn't begin the negotiations at the 50-yard line. That's one of the lessons I take from my experience as a Speaker of the House. So you're never going to get this plan if you don't actually uh, put it out there. And I think we can get from here to there in part by recognizing that what we're doing now doesn't work. I mean, healthcare costs are the single biggest source of bankruptcy in the United States. Uh, we're seeing something like 35,000 people in the, this nation die each year because they can't afford to see a doctor or a healthcare provider. And we're spending, as you know, twice as much as our competitors on healthcare that's not actually twice as good. Our life expectancy right. isn't longer. Our infant or maternal mortality rates aren't lower. We're just leading the world in spending. How do you respond to uh, uh, Hickenlooper, who, if you face in the general, will say, will claim that you are, uh, you're going to outlaw private um, uh, health insurance? Uh, for folks. Uh, what, what's the response for that? Well, I'd say a few things. I, I have not met a lot of families in Colorado who tell me, please don't touch my Anthem or my United or my Cigna. Folks say, uh, please make sure that my doctor or my specialist is right. covered, and all of them would be, right? Under a, a plan of Medicare for All, all those providers would be participating in the system. I have met some folks who said they liked their insurance until they had to use it, and then they figured out it didn't actually cover what they thought. Uh, and I've met plenty of folks who can't wait to turn 65 so that they can get the security that comes from Medicare. On the flip side, I've met young people who just aged out of their parents' plans when they turned 26. Nobody in their right mind would design a system like this from scratch. It's not really a system at all. It's just a patchwork, a crazy quilt uh, that we've assembled. Uh, and we're going to need to take on the insurance industry and the drug companies if we want to extend coverage and improve quality and hold down costs, which is the goal of healthcare reform.
Uh, so um, you you are a longtime educator. Let's talk a little bit about uh, public education. Um, I can see from uh, your priorities on your website at andrewromanoff.com that you want to guarantee essentially universal uh, pre-K and uh, full-day kindergarten. Talk about that briefly, and then let's talk about the other end uh, of the, um, the the educational, I guess, uh, journey, um, higher education. Sure, I've met enough uh, elementary school teachers and parents who can tell you that the kids who get the advantage of high-quality early childhood education are more likely to do well in school and less likely to fall behind or drop out. So the advantage of high-quality preschool and full-day kindergarten uh, are obvious and monumental. It's one of the reasons that Governor Polis and the legislature here in Colorado are taking steps in that direction. I think it's a guarantee we ought to extend to all Americans. Um, and it's one of the reasons I fought so hard when I was in the state legislature to increase funding, uh, not just for early childhood education, but for our schools generally, where funding lags the nation. I teamed up with a friend here who was the state treasurer at the time, a woman named Carrie Kennedy, uh, to author the largest investment in school construction in state history. Um, I worked on legislation to improve access to higher education. And I want to make sure that pe- teachers actually get paid what they're worth because we're losing a lot of good people to that profession because we have shortchanged it or blame them for everything that society itself uh, fails to address. Uh, so uh, what does that mean in terms of like tangible plans for, for higher ed? The plan I believe we ought to extend says let's relieve students of that uh, trillion and a half dollars of debt they're carrying now, more than credit card debt, more than car loans. It's a huge drag on the economy and the productivity of the country, and obviously on the ability of a young person, or even a not so young person who's still saddling that, saddled under that debt to, to find a job and buy a home and save enough for retirement. And I think just as we made a commitment in this country uh, that a free education would be available through 12th grade, we need to recognize that a high school diploma is not enough to train someone for the sorts of jobs that the economy is now creating. It doesn't have to be a four-year degree because not everybody wants one or gets one or needs one, but it's got to be some kind of post-secondary training. Uh, We've been talking to a lot of folks about apprenticeship programs, about community colleges like those in Colorado where I've taught, uh, and about uh, four-year institutions or beyond. I think we can make that commitment as a country, several pieces of legislation in Congress that would do it. Obviously, uh, the feds can't pick up the whole tab, and so most of the bills I've seen uh, allow for a state share as well. And to be honest, Colorado needs to do a better job. We fell to something like 49th in the nation in public support for higher education and lost good jobs to other states that more effectively made that investment. Andrew Romanoff, uh, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Sam. Andrew Romanoff is running for Senate in Colorado. You can find out more about Andrew's campaign over at andrewromanoff.com. Hey, that's it for this week's Ring of Fire. Special thank you to all of our free podcast subscribers that converted into members this past week. You're helping support the show, and we cannot thank you enough. If you're listening to the free podcast, consider becoming a member of the full show over at rofpodcast.com. Like I said at the top of the show, we're opening it up and unlocking it for everybody. But eventually, we're going to close it off. In the meantime, you can support the show. Don't forget, you can follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Watch our videos on YouTube. You can go to ringoffireradio.com to find out more. Again, that's rofpodcast.com to support the show. And check out my daily show. It's called The Majority Report. Head over to majority.fm 
for my daily live stream at noon or later as a podcast. And on this week's Friday show, special guest, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, who is running for re-election and has a primary challenge uh, in New York, uh, well, coming up this week. So check that out. Couldn't be more excited to have a politician on the program. Uh, Generally, I don't even do it because I'm not even that excited about politicians. But uh, AOC, I consider to be one of the politicians who we're going to be talking about for probably longer than I'll even be talking. Hopefully. I'm Sam Cedar. This has been Ring of Fire. I saw a friend of mine the other day And he told me that my eyes were gleaming I said I'd been away And he knew, oh he knew the depths I was mean And then it felt so good to see his face All the comfort and